Welcome back to the Angel Health Podcast. Today, I'm super excited to have a reproductive psychiatrist with us, Dr. Brittany Blue. So thank you so much for being here um, and making the trek down from Westlake Village. My <laughs> pleasure. I'm excited to be here. Um, awesome. Well, I'd love to know more about your background and general experience, um, especially what got you specifically involved in reproductive psychiatry. Definitely. So I went to undergrad in Boston and then went to med school at UCLA and decided pretty early on that I wanted to be a psychiatrist. Went to UCLA for psychiatry residency also. Um, I didn't know I wanted to be a reproductive psychiatrist until my third year of residency. UCLA has this amazing clinic um, that's just an outpatient reproductive psychiatry clinic that's pretty unique. So I signed up for it just because I thought it was an interesting, you know, unique learning opportunity. And then I actually ended up getting pregnant at the very beginning of that same year that I was doing that clinic rotation. And just the, the intersection between those two experiences, being pregnant and learning how to treat mental illness during pregnancy and then postpartum was just like so eye-opening. And I, I just fell in love with it. So I actually went back and I did the clinic again my fourth year when I was in my first year postpartum. Mm-hmm. And it just added to that, that same passion for it. So I've never looked back. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so how many kids do you have now? I have one kid. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, yeah, as you know, we're a corporate bank, so mm-hmm. I'd love to chat briefly about corporate banking, especially since you have had a baby. Um, so in your eyes, what are the pros and cons to corporate banking as a reproductive psychiatrist? So I see a lot of pros, right? I think it's, it's something that's not invasive. It's really easy to do. Again, with, you know, the kits and, and the resources that are out there, it's really easy and non-invasive to do. And it's just a nice insurance policy, you know, God forbid anybody in your family or your kid gets sick, to be able to have access to this really incredible scientific technology to, you know, to heal them or cure them is just mind-blowing. And then, you know, the cons, you know, depending on the various resources out there, you know, cost, I think, is probably just the biggest thing that comes to mind and access to it. Um, But beyond that, I don't really see any, any sort of comes to it. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, we can skip the, the if you did it for your kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, do you have any questions for me around corporate banking? You know, it's not something that I had thought about a whole lot before um, or was really offered to me actively during my own pregnancy. Yeah, I have you heard of it before? I had heard of it before, you know, sort of in medical training. It, it was just yeah. something I, I have memories of it but it wasn't something that I had the um the perspective that it was really commonly offered or talked about and so I'm kind of curious how you've seen the awareness about it spreading if it's becoming more common or popular yeah I would say it's definitely more common um like every year they release this report on kind of the corporate banking market and it does definitely grow every year still around only 2% of parents do it in the United States. Um, but I think it's kind of interesting because in other countries like in Portugal and China and Singapore, um, it's as high as 30% of parents doing it. Um, I think in Singapore specifically, it's because they receive a stipend whenever they have kids. So they have a little bit more disposable income to be able to spend um, on things like this. But um, yeah, but it is it is interesting. I think the yeah the awareness has definitely shifted, um, especially as OBs are um, yeah more exposed to it. And in general, I think older OBs tend to be a little bit less inclined, um, just because it's newer research and they kind of feel like they haven't really been updated on it. But I feel like like younger folks like yourself have definitely heard of it through medical training, like you mentioned. Um, so, yeah, I sort of like the, the OBs that heard about it in med school enter the field. Um, I think it is becoming more common. I wonder, you know, if pediatricians would be really more open to it too, since, like, you know, the blood banking happens sort of in the sort of labor and delivery yeah. unit where OBs kind of take priority or are sort of the head of what's going on. But really, the benefits of the, the stem cells are going to come later, you know. And, under pediatrician's care, right? They're kind of more open to it. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think so. Yeah, I try to with pediatricians too. I think sometimes parents haven't approached a pediatrician per se, or they've like um, kind of barely touched the, scratched the surface of finding one. 
Um, so they don't end up getting as involved in birth decisions. And I think this tends to fall more under like a birth decision. Um, but yeah, I think especially when it comes to use cases, the pediatrician is for sure more involved. Um, especially if the, the baby has been tested for some genetic condition or is um, seems to be predisposed. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that really ties into what I see as like a healthy um, postpartum experience, which is yeah. not just to focus on the birth plan and what's going on in the labor and delivery suite, but really prepping for the postpartum and new parenthood right. is, you know, having a, a plan for what's going to happen at delivery, but also what's the feeding plan for the baby? Who's going to help take care of it? You know, God forbid the baby gets sick. How are they going to help get, you know, medical treatment? Right. You know, a huge part of the postpartum plan. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I feel like when I chat with um, other folks in the medical space about this postpartum mental health in general, it, it kind of feels like people spend so much time preparing for pregnancy and birth and they just kind of end, up, end up neglecting postpartum hormones because they are just like so busy thinking about what's going to happen throughout pregnancy and birth. And then when postpartum comes, I've had a lot of parents tell me that they feel like totally unprepared and they just like didn't really think about it. Um, and then mental health ends up getting neglected too because there's just kind of a frenzy of things happening. Yeah. Um, so yeah, super excited for our test day. <laughs> Um, well, before we dive into postpartum mental health, I'd love to chat about pregnancy-related mental health as well. Um, so what are some common mental health issues that you've found that arise during pregnancy specifically? So depression and anxiety are, are really common during pregnancy, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not necessarily new mental health issues that arise specifically in pregnancy, although people can have new onset issues that rise up. but Typically, people have a history of mental illness of any kind, depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, OCD. Mm-hmm. Um, pregnancy tends to be a vulnerable time. It was previously thought that it was a protective time for mental health. Yeah. And, you know, everyone glows and everyone's perfectly happy to be pregnant. And, and mental illness, you know, sort of quieter. But we actually know that it's a more vulnerable time. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you have a history of anxiety or depression and you're currently pregnant, then what are the chances that you will have anxiety or depression during your pregnancy? Um, And what can you do to sort of guardrail from that? Yeah. So the risk of having another episode during pregnancy sort of varies. It's estimated about 13 to 15% of women or people who are pregnant will have uh, an episode of depression during pregnancy. Mm. So it's fairly common. If you have a history of depression or anxiety, the risk is likely higher. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a study that that showed that if you are depressed and you're on medication, you have about a 40, 45% chance of having an episode of depression during pregnancy. Mm. If you continue on the medication, your risk goes down to 25%. Okay. If you stop the medication in anticipation of pregnancy, the risk goes up to about 68%. Mm. Okay, so wow. to guardrail against it, it actually is really important to stay on medication because again, it's not a it's not a protected time. Yeah. Are most medications for depression and anxiety able to be taken during pregnancy as well? Yeah. Okay. The vast majority of them are. Awesome. Okay, cool. Um, so how can you emotionally prepare for, uh, for pregnancy or wait, how, how can you emotionally prepare for pregnancy if you have had anxiety or depression in your family's history, but you may not necessarily have encountered it yourself? If you have a family history of it, it, it may slightly increase your risk of having it, but really the, the personal history of having depression or anxiety is, um, what puts you at much greater risk. Okay. For, for having it during your own pregnancy or postpartum. Um, but even still, you know, everybody has things in their life that they've dealt with. Um, you know, having a family history of, of any kind of mental illness may have impacted that person's life. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I just sort of generally blanket recommend, you know, it never hurts to talk to a therapist. Right. Unpack your own childhood, unpack, you know, the different things that have happened to you in your life because you're embarking on this huge transition in life. You know, becoming a parent is a huge, huge deal. And depression, anxiety, even put aside, just emotionally preparing for that transition and that new role in your life um, can really be aided by, by the help of a, a professional. Right, okay, awesome. 
Um, what risk factors should pregnant parents be aware of when it comes to developing postpartum depression or anxiety? Um, and what should they just kind of look out for any warning signs or anything like that for when they should specifically seek help? Or do you recommend seeking help as a preventative measure? And when should that happen? Yeah. Um, so specific risk factors to, to think about, again, the, the most prominent ones that put you at greatest risk for developing depression or anxiety during pregnancy and postpartum is a, a personal history of mental illness. So if you've had yeah. it before, it's a vulnerable time to have it again. If you have active depression or anxiety during pregnancy, that significantly increases the risk for postpartum issues. So, so stability predicts stability, instability predicts instability. Right. Um, the best thing that you can do is get treatment for it as soon as possible. And actually preventative treatment is, mm -hmm. is the best. So if you have a history of depression, anxiety, but it's, it's well managed, it's quiet, whether on or off medication, having the input of a mental health professional, whether that's a perinatal therapist or a psychiatrist, to just talk about what your risk factors are, talk about um, kind of monitoring actively during pregnancy so that if there is any kind of whiff of recurrence, that you can mm -hmm. get it really quickly. Yeah, okay, interesting. Um, so if someone is currently pregnant, when should they seek out um, mental health support like as a preventative measure? Um, do you recommend that they're kind of doing it when they're trying to conceive? Um, or at what point would it be helpful to specifically seek out a reproductive psychiatrist? Well, psychiatry specifically when there's a question of medication. Mm -hmm. um, usually if people have never been on medication before, they won't come to the thought of starting medication for the first time ever when they're getting pregnant. That's usually not when they're first seeking it out. It's usually when they're actively depressed right. or anxious, even if they've never been on medication before. Um, then you know they'll come to see a psychiatrist, even if it's during pregnancy. But um, really seeking mental health help at any time, you know, prior to conception, during the first trimester, before or after you feel um, depressed, anxious, having more OCD symptoms, whatever the symptoms are, the diagnosis is, the sooner that you seek help, the better. Yeah. Okay. Good tips. Um, how do pregnancy hormones typically contribute to depression and anxiety? That's a complicated, <laughs> a complicated question. Yeah. Because for some people, they really can, you know, again, like I said, it's a vulnerable time, but there are some women who say that they have never felt better than they, when they were pregnant. So there are a few women that, that really does hold true and the pregnancy hormones really kind of calm things down. There are some women that are just more sensitive to fluctuations in mm. hormones and, and pregnancy and postpartum is just a period of time where there's constant fluctuation. And so women that are a little bit more sensitive to that might have a really hard time, especially in the postpartum. There's this steady increase of your hormones during pregnancy and then just this precipitous drop at delivery. And that can be a really, really hard time. Right. I'm curious if any hormonal changes that you might experience throughout a menstrual cycle can be predictive of any hormonal and mental health side effects you might have as a result of that during pregnancy. Yeah, you know, I think we need more data on that to really see if there's a true association between women who may have, you know, diagnoses of PMDD or premenstrual dysphoric disorder and who experience postpartum depression. Just from a clinical standpoint, you know, I, I do see a bit of a, of a pattern that that yeah. can happen, that women who, who have a bit more mood fluctuation during their menstrual cycles might have a bit more of a hard time in postpartum as well. Right. Okay. Um, sorry. Is the is that one okay? Uh, yeah. So the that battery um, kind of died too. Oh, okay. But this one seems okay. So I think this is gonna get okay. through. Okay. Okay. Cool. Are the others still good? Uh, let's see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Sorry about all the technical difficulties. <laughs> okay. I feel so bad. <laughs> it's okay. Um. It's it's still rolling. Let me Awesome. Um, so how can you tell, or, uh, let me start. Um, so I feel like during pregnancy, anxiety tends to be relatively common. Like even for things like kick counting, when I've talked about on my platform, I get a lot of comments 
around like, I don't really like to kick count because it, it creates anxiety and I already have so much anxiety around all the potential things that could happen during pregnancy. And I feel like some parents just kind of naturally feel a state of anxiety, especially if they're a first time parent. So how can pregnant parents decipher between very serious anxiety that requires mental health support versus kind of just normal worries that any first time parent might naturally come across? It's a huge gray area because anxiety and worry is a, almost an inherent part of that process. And, right. and rightfully so, right? You should be um, concerned about the health and the safety of your pregnancy and your baby. That's part right. of being a parent. But when it's becoming excessive, uh, you're spending too much time thinking about it, the, the thoughts about, you know, what if this happens? What if that happens are, are becoming really sticky. Mm-hmm. It's hard to, you know, get off of that thought and... and switch directions once it happens it's becoming more irrational like what if um sorry i can't think of a specific example so we can just like cut that part yeah out. but if it's if it's becoming you know more irrational um and the thoughts that you're having just aren't likely really to happen mm. um if it's really eating up a lot of your your day and causing a lot of distress um, or interrupting your sleep or your appetite or your relationships or work that's when it's really getting into more clinical levels of anxiety. Right. If you're not sure, again, seeking the the perspective of a mental health professional who can help kind of decide, walk you through that and tease it apart and decipher with you, is this normal kind of parental worry or is this really getting to a point where that needs treatment? Even if it's somewhere in the middle, a therapist can help with, with coping skills and ways of talking back to the thought so that they don't eat up as much of your time or cause as much distress. Right. Okay. So even if someone is experiencing kind of the normal worries, um, and especially if they aren't experiencing just normal worries and it's beyond that, what would be your top three self-care tips for mental health specifically when it comes to postpartum depression and anxiety, um, but also even during pregnancy? Mm-hmm. Sleep. Sleep is huge. Um, yeah. It's a major contributor to, to mental well-being. Mm. So sleep is really hard in pregnancy and postpartum. Um, in pregnancy, you know, there's just um, the anxiety and the worry, but there's also just pregnancy-induced insomnia. And then in the yeah. postpartum, you know, everybody has, has problems sleeping. Right. Um, but working with potentially your doctor to see if there's any help with sleep aids that you can take working with a therapist who can do cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is the best, you know, gold standard first line treatment for insomnia. Mm. Um, doing that would be incredibly helpful. Um, but really just figuring out ways that you can improve your sleep. And we can talk about what that looks like in the postpartum a lot yeah. more. Um, <laughs> maybe a little bit later. Yeah. That's a whole separate, a whole separate thing. Um, so sleep is a major one. Uh, distribu- distribution of household labor is another one. So self-care could mean not taking on as much of the mental and visible load of, of household management right. during pregnancy and postpartum and really getting your partner uh, practiced in doing more household labor during pregnancy so that you don't have to sort of scramble to figure that out in the yeah. immediate postpartum. Um, but really getting getting your partner to um, anticipate what needs to be done, not just, you know, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Yeah. Um, That's not as helpful, but for your partner to really be able to look and anticipate and and make that own mental checklist for themselves and Mm -hmm. and then carry out tasks can take a huge, huge load off of women. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent tip. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting that you mention sort of partner support because I feel like those are habits you can start to institute during pregnancy and especially when it comes to things like breastfeeding. I, I've had lactation consultants on our podcast, for instance, that have stated that partners should really begin to be helpful during breastfeeding and can really provide that extra support. Um, so what other lifestyle changes do you feel like parents should begin to do during pregnancy in order to be able to protect against poor mental health in the postpartum period? So having a really good postpartum plan, kind of planning ahead, again, not yeah. just for delivery. Everyone thinks about delivery because mm-hmm. it's, it's big and it's scary <laughs> yeah. and, you know, painful, right? Mm-hmm. And you want to prepare for that as much as possible. But like you said, everybody forgets about the postpartum. Yeah. So thinking really proactively about 
what are the different feeding options for the baby and my openness to them and, and creating a really flexible plan. Mm -hmm. um, having your partner, again, be well acquainted with, with not just helping, but being a active, equal member of the household and really pulling their weight so that it's not just he works and I do this. You're both active members of taking right. care of the home and the, the baby. Um, sorry, lifestyle modifications. I'm just sort of thinking oh, yeah. about how to like phrase things. Um, yeah it's not often like lifestyle stuff like exercise mm. and stuff it's like, okay yeah. yeah that makes sense yeah um yeah I I think it's interesting you mentioned yeah the sort of partner support again and um yeah if, if someone is a single parent what kind of tips do you have for them to prevent against postpartum depression anxiety because I feel like especially in those instances is when the lack of sleep might be even more dire um yeah I'm curious about that yeah that's it's a hard one, right? Um, whether people are a single parent by choice or just by circumstance, right? Trying to build up your support um, and community outside of just a romantic partner or the other the other parent is absolutely crucial, um, and that can be found in in a number of ways. But you, but people you know may need to actively work to to build up that community a bit more. And that really depends on their resources, right? Yeah. Some people may be lucky enough and, and resourced enough to afford full-time nanny or doula, or um, some people may have uh, family around, you know, not a partner, but family that can pitch in. Some people really are, are quite isolated for whatever reason. And yeah. so working to, you know, meet neighbors or join a, a church or religious um community where people are more likely to, to pitch in and help, mm. um, seeking out to, you know, seeking out friends who maybe even if they're far away and they can't come physically, if anyone's able to organize you know, an online meal train, yeah. um, to get some meals delivered, whatever they can do to help get any kind of support, mm. um, from other people, whether that's immediate physical support or whatever support can be given from, from far away, right. that's going to help the most. Yeah, yeah, I remember earlier this year when the CDC published that study that um, 80% of pregnancy-related deaths are preventable, and uh, the one of the leading causes is mental health issues. So I remember that article cited specifically finding community and just being super intentional about that. Um, so yeah, whether it's a Facebook group or anything like that, um, yeah, just someone that you can kind of rely on. Yeah, and the support that I was just talking about was sort of the care support, right? right? But finding community and people to relate to um, and vent to and, you know, just talk about the, the transition into parenthood with is super important. So that, yeah. um, that can be Facebook groups or social media. It can be a bit of a minefield as well. You have to be really intentional about the accounts you're following or the people that you're engaging with on social media. Yeah. Um, Postpartum Support International is an incredible organization that has just dozens of free online support groups, mm. um, just general support groups for moms, but then also different, more specific ones for different demographics, different parenting um, setups of so single parents or um, same sex parents, you know, different, different kinds of groups. So yeah. that uh, if again, you need some kind of community to just feel that emotional support, that's a, an incredible resource. Mm. That's a good tip. Yeah, I, I actually didn't know about that organization. I've heard of Peanut, um, mm -hmm. the, yeah, sort of like Tinder for parents. Yeah. Do you typically recommend that as well? I don't typically recommend it. I don't not recommend it. I yeah. think, it, you know, for finding people who who are in the same boat and you can actually meet up with, I think it's great. Yeah. Um, but if it's not really working out, again, P, um, PSI, or Postpartum Support International, is also a professional organization. So the mm -hmm. groups are also run by perinatal mental health professionals. Oh, okay. Yeah. Amazing. That's awesome. Um, cool. Well, I wanted to pivot a bit into sort of medications, especially since you're a psychiatrist. Yeah. Um, so I know we chatted about medications being safe during pregnancy for the most part, but are there any medications for OCD, anxiety, and depression that you can't take during pregnancy? 
For OCD, anxiety, and depression, the short answer is no. There's no medication that you absolutely cannot take because they're all OCD, ADHD, I'm sorry, OCD, anxiety, and depression are all treated with antidepressants, mm. SSRIs, SNRIs, potentially um, bupropion or Wellbutrin, right. and mirtazapine or Remeron. Those are, are sort of big antidepressant classes. Yeah. And all of them have sufficient data to, to support their safety. Yeah. Um, we typically think that we need about 700 cases of exposure of a medication in pregnancy to really feel comfortable knowing that um, there's no real increased risk of anything happening. And we have that amount for, for all of those meds. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. Um, can women with OCD and ADHD also stick with their medications typically? And in the case that they do have those, do you have, um, yeah, like any guardrails that you would recommend? So for OCD, they, we use the same meds as for anxiety and depression. So it's mainly treated with antidepressants. So no question about that. For ADHD, it's a little bit more of a nuanced conversation. Um, we, we don't have as much data on the stimulants as we would like. Again, we haven't really hit that 700 Mm. number. So we have a small amount of data. What we have is overall reassuring. Yeah. Um, nothing to suggest that people need to immediately stop their medication when they get pregnant, Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, freak out if they're, they're on it and they accidentally get pregnant. Right. Um, you know, there, the small amount of data that we have suggests that there may be very, very, very small increased risks of preterm labor or small birth weight babies, mm. uh, depending on which trimester the medication is taken. But again, we need a lot more information to know if those are real findings. Um, if they are real findings, again, the increase in risk is really, really, really small. Yeah. And when we're thinking about whether or not to take a medication in pregnancy, the risk of medication exposure is one thing to, to keep in mind, mm-hmm. but it tends to be overvalued and, mm-hmm. and the risk of it tends to be overestimated. The risk of mental illness during pregnancy is the thing that gets forgotten about mm-hmm. and underestimated. Right. So we know this from the data in antidepressants that actually untreated mental illness during pregnancy, depression, anxiety, some of that depression, anxiety that can come from untreated ADHD, right? That is actually associated with poor outcomes. Mm. Preterm labor, small birth weight babies, preeclampsia, long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes in kids, learning and behavioral issues, things like that. Mm. And so what we know from the antidepressant data is that actually taking the medication during pregnancy may mitigate those risks rather than increase the risks. It used to be thought that the medications caused those poor outcomes. Yeah. Um, the, the early data you know, showed that association between medication and those poor outcomes, but the more recent data has really shown that it's not the medications, it's the underlying mental illness. Right. And so when we think about the ADHD treatment where there may be a, a bit more risk with the medications themselves, first of all, we still don't know that for sure. Yeah. But the risk of not taking them might actually outweigh the risk of taking them. Mm. But it's a more nuanced conversation about the severity of the ADHD, you know, how much it impacts their lives if they're not on their medication. Yeah. And that that conversation really should happen with someone who's well-versed in the risks of the medication. And, um, you know, that's typically a, specifically a reproductive psychiatrist. Right. Yeah. That, yeah, that's definitely interesting. I think... Um, yeah, I'm actually on Keppra, the medication, um, because I have a history of seizures. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I remember like when I first got on the medication, I mean, I was 18, but my mom was like, what if you're on this for life? Like, what if you try to have a kid and stuff like that? But um, yeah, like I feel like the risk of potentially having a seizure would, yeah, outweigh anything else. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a good good framework. Yeah. It's, it's individual to each medication. You know, yeah. De- Depakote is another um, anti-seizure medication right. that, that's really commonly used. And it's actually one of the ones that's used both in neurology and psychiatry. Mm. But Depakote is actually one that in psychiatry is our biggest no-no okay. for pregnancy. That's really 
the the one medication if you were to ask me what's the one medication that you cannot yeah. take in pregnancy that's it okay. so again it's individual to each medication yeah um you know i was kind of talking broadly about the antidepressants but if you're on any medication and you have questions about it safety and pregnancy it it requires a nuanced conversation yeah so depakote is mainly used to treat seizures so it's used to treat seizures and neurology and psychiatry yeah. it's used as a mood stabilizer okay. and bipolar disorder okay interesting yeah um, awesome. Well, I'd love to move into postpartum mental health since you said that that is very frequently neglected as we chatted about. Um, so how soon after birth can postpartum depression start and what are really initial symptoms that you feel like parents should look out for? Yeah. So there seem to be kind of different subtypes of postpartum depression. Sometimes it can start to rear its head in the third trimester. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it presents really early on. I've had some, some people say that it presented immediately following birth mm. or in, you know, the first four weeks or so. And for some right. people, it can take a few weeks to kind of set in. Yeah. So it varies. Um, when it happens in those first few weeks or when you start to develop symptoms in those first few weeks, it can be a little bit difficult to to differentiate from baby blues or postpartum blues, right. which is exceedingly common. About 85 yeah. to 90% of women will have baby blues. Mm. So that looks like more crying, the sort of mood fluctuation, or they feel a bit more labile, just their emotions kind of feel everywhere. Yeah. Um, they may be worried and, and different things, but it's typically not so severe that it's impacting their function. They can still take care of themselves, take care of the baby, um, get everything done, and the relationships are not really being tested. It's self-limited. It goes away by itself without treatment within two to three weeks. Mm. So if you start to develop symptoms right in that window, sometimes it's best to just wait you know, a little bit to see if it's, yeah. if it's petering out. Uh, but if it's really getting, if it's really severe, um, you're, you know, having really, really dark thoughts, mm -hmm. um, you know, wanting to, wanting to die or thinking that your baby or your family would be better off without you. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're unable to sleep, even when given the opportunity, um, you know, not eating or eating too much or, you know, like going back to sleep, sleeping too much, um, feeling really detached from the infant, um, all, you know, your your mental health is really impacting your ability to engage in your relationships with other members of your family. Right. Those are signs that, that real true depression is setting in. Right. So what causes baby blues versus postpartum depression? So there's probably some overlap. Um, baby blues is, you know, most likely just an adjustment to this giant, again, drop in hormones right mm -hmm. after delivery. And that adjustment period um, is, you know, it actually takes several years for, for the full adjustment to hormonal changes, mm. but from that, that precipitous drop, you know, those yeah. first couple of weeks are, are a bit shaky. Postpartum depression can be multifactorial. Again, it can be its own, own isolated thing where it's a response to the change in hormones. It all, could also just be a recurrence of an existing major depressive disorder. Right. Okay. So you mentioned that baby blues is common in around 85 to 90% of new parents. Um, but how common is specifically postpartum depression and anxiety? 10 to 20% of women will have postpartum depression or anxiety, but your risk for that, you know, is higher or lower depending on your own personal history. Mm. Um, if you have a history of depression or anxiety, if you're depressed or anxious during your pregnancy, your risk is going to be higher. Right. Okay. And if you've had it before, if you've had, for instance, another child that you experienced postpartum depression and anxiety with, is it then more likely that you'll experience it again with future babies? Yes, with a caveat. Yeah. So if you've had a history of postpartum depression, you are more likely to have it again, about 50%, um, mm. you know, risk of right. having it again. The caveat is if you don't do anything different. Yeah. Um, if you were not on any kind of medication treatment or in therapy or, or anything during your first pregnancy, but during your second one, you you say, you know, I don't want to deal with that again. I don't want to experience that again. I'm going to get therapy. I'm going to start medication or continue the medication that I've been on, you know, since that episode. Yeah. You're going to mitigate that risk. 
and the risk of it happening again is going to be significantly lower. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. We had an OB on our podcast who said that they actually feel like, um, it, it, a postpartum depression and anxiety is better managed um, when the parent has experienced it before in life, whether or not it's within a pregnancy context, um, because they have already sort of built up the habits towards management. And it's actually the people that have never experienced it before that end up having kind of a uh, like more chaotic coping experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, awesome. Um, let's see, we already answered that one. Um, so, yeah, I feel like in general, there are a lot of sort of misconceptions about mental health, especially around the postpartum period. So what do you think are the most common misconceptions and what are the correct stances on them? <laughs> yeah. So major misconceptions in the postpartum. Um, one thing that really doesn't get talked about a lot is postpartum OCD Okay. Um, or OCD symptoms. Yeah. So, there's first of all a lot of misconception about what OCD in general is. It's not just about being clean or fastidious or keeping everything at right angles. Sometimes it is, but really what OCD is is um, these unwanted, distressing, immediate intrusive thoughts that just pop into your head. Those are the obsessions. And the compulsions are these behaviors that people take to reduce their anxiety that those obsessions bring. Right. So those obsessions or those intrusive thoughts are actually incredibly common in the postpartum, even in mm. women who have no history of OCD or even mental illness in general. Yeah. Just, it's some kind of evolutionary mechanism to kind of probably keep your baby safe. But many, many women will have these immediate thoughts of harm coming to their baby, harm mm. coming to themselves. Um, sometimes it's images of them dropping their babies mm -hmm. or, you know, picking up a knife and doing something terrible. It's, it can vary in so many different ways. Um, but it's not very widely talked about. And so it's common, not widely talked about. And so there are tons of women out there experiencing this and not knowing what it is and thinking yeah. that they're like going crazy or that they want to do that. And the, the important part is the res emotional response to the thought. Mm -hmm. Um, if your response to the thought of harming your baby is, huh, you know, maybe that might be necessary or that, mm. you know, I might want to do that. That's terrifying and, and it needs emergent, you know, care. That's yeah. very, very concerning. Very, very rare though. Mm -hmm. Most of the time the response to that thought is horror. Oh my gosh. No, I don't want to hurt my baby. I, that, what does that mean about me? Yeah. The response is guilt and shame and horror, right? Um, knowing what that thought is, knowing that it doesn't mean anything about you, about your fitness as a parent, about how much you love your baby, um, that can be really healing in and of itself, just knowing what it is. If it's getting more severe, if they're constant, you know, you can't unstick yourself from them, you're starting to avoid certain things um, to, to manage the anxiety that comes with them, then you're really getting into kind of diagnosable postpartum OCD and that, yeah. that will require treatment. But just having those thoughts by themselves doesn't necessarily mean that you need treatment. Just kind of knowing what it is yeah. can be helpful enough. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting because we yeah, I've never chatted about um, specifically postpartum OCD on this podcast. So um, yeah, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I, I would say another, another misconception is that every parent feels that immediate magical bond and attachment mm. and all-consuming love for their baby, Yeah, um, that that's the norm. That expectation um, can set up a lot of distress and disappointment, again, guilt and shame, right. if it doesn't happen. Right. Actually, for... A lot of people, I venture even to say most people, it doesn't happen that way. It takes a, it takes time. You're meeting this brand new person. It takes time to get to know them and for that bond and emotional attachment to, to gradually build up and develop. Right. So I think managing that expectation that that's going to happen can help alleviate that stress after the fact. Right. Do you find that that happens more frequently with dads, that they have trouble building a connection? Not trouble building a connection necessarily, but um, I think it's actually really common for both parents. It's just mm. that moms 
are kind of primed to expect that, yeah. that immediate attachment. Right. Okay. Awesome. Um, well, I think another really interesting sort of conception around postpartum depression and anxiety is um, that a lot of folks just don't seek treatment and don't even tell anyone that they experience it. So I think it's really interesting that very recently the FDA approved a medication specifically to treat postpartum depression um, and anxiety. So what is your take on this medication? Have you begun to prescribe it? Um, should this be something that parents should really consider? Yeah, this is a really, really exciting time to be treating postpartum depression. Yeah. Um, it's the first, you know, novel novel treatment that we have in this new mechanism. Uh, there's a, a similar medication to it that's been around for a few years, but it's really complicated to get. And hmm. I think less than a thousand people have, have actually gotten the treatment oh, wow. since it's been available. Why is it so difficult to get? So it's the same mechanism of action, but it's an IV infusion that requires, it's like a 60 hour infusion. You need oh, wow. to be admitted to a hospital and observe oh, wow. for that long. Um, there's only a few centers that are even offering it. I think yeah. Only four in California. Um, and it's not covered by insurance and wildly mm. expensive. Okay. So just across the board, really inaccessible. Yeah. But this new medication that was just approved, it's the same mechanism. Um, but available in a pill form. It's a 14-day wow. treatment um, that's uh, taken immediately postpartum. And the data for it is really exciting. So um, it's a 14-day treatment. The study um, studied it in people who are on antidepressants and, and also not on antidepressants. So mm. safe to take it with, with other meds if you're already on them. Um, and it really seemed to work. It separated from placebo within three days of starting it. And that, that improvement sustained until the end of the study, which was 45 days after wow. starting treatment. So it's about a month and a half, right? We need more studies to know its longer term effect, if it wears off after that or, or what. Uh, and there, so there's still a lot of unanswered questions, but the fact that there's this new treatment that seems to be really effective and really quickly, that's really the main difference is it worked yeah. in three days. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. We also, we need more information about it. It's safety during breastfeeding. So in mm. the study, even though these are immediately postpartum women, they were, um, told to stop breastfeeding, mm -hmm. uh, because again, we don't know. We don't have any safety data yet. Yeah. So we don't have any more safety data on it from these initial studies. We need more to, to really know. Um, but so for the 14 days of treatment, um, you know, it's not that they have to just give up breastfeeding completely. If they don't want to, they may pump and dump for, mm -hmm. for the period of treatment and then a week afterward. Um, but we just need more data on that. Right. I haven't prescribed it yet because it's actually not it's approved, but it's not available available yet. It mm. um, will likely be available by the end of this year. Okay. Yeah. Do you think you will prescribe it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Um, cool. Well, I know we chatted about um, sort of dads and any connection that they might be missing or anything like that. Um, but how can dads best support moms that are experiencing postpartum depression and anxiety and do you find that dads actually experience it themselves absolutely about 10 percent we think of dads may experience postpartum depression and anxiety mm -hmm. um and what we actually know is that when one partner has depression postpartum depression or anxiety the other partner is more likely to right and so even one partner getting treatment um and and having one mentally, emotionally well parent is really good for the baby. Okay. Um, so it's really important to recognize it, address it, get it treated. Yeah. Um, if dad isn't depressed though, and mom is, um, the ways that dad can really help, similar to what we talked about before, being really proactive about picking up what mom can't do mm -hmm. at that moment, housework, baby care, all these different things not asking what needs to be done, but anticipating, knowing, you know, hey, there's a pile of laundry, the dishes yeah. are piling up, we need bottles to be cleaned. Mm. Um, we need groceries or A, B, C, D. Yeah. Um, if mom doesn't have mental health care already set up, you know, dad can, can help reach out to, to professionals or if they don't know who to reach out to, dad can reach out to mom's OB and mm -hmm. say, you know, she's really struggling. Do you know anybody? Right. Um, 
you know, with HIPAA laws, physicians can always receive information. They, they can't disclose any information. But if someone's concerned about their loved one, they can always call somebody's doctor and say, I'm concerned about them. Mm. Can you help? Okay. Do you find that similar dynamics play out in same-sex couples or even like surrogate parents? It's complicated. We need a lot more data. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, gender roles tend to be a bit more evenly divided mm. in same-sex couples. Um, granted, they're always individual variation. Yeah. Right? But um, it's not as you know clearly societally imposed on them. Okay. So if you are currently experiencing postpartum depression, anxiety, what are your top three tips for coping with it? Get professional help is one, two, and three. Honestly, um, find specialized care. Mm -hmm. So there are general therapists and general psychiatrists and they're wonderful, but this is a very specific time of life that requires specialized care. Right. Um, and so a reproductive psychiatrist who knows the data about um, medications and breastfeeding is going to be really important if that's necessary. Because yeah. a lot of general psychiatrists, and this is true actually in pregnancy as well, general psychiatrists don't receive a lot of training in managing meds during these times, mm. during their, their residencies. Mm. Um, Again, I came through UCLA, and if I hadn't done that one specific clinic, I may have had two pregnant patients my entire training career. And so that's what most sort of community psychiatrists are are coming from. Mm -hmm. And so they also, they practice um, defensively when it comes to, you know, medical legal issues, right? They don't want to be responsible, God forbid, if something were to happen and they were prescribing something during Mm -hmm. a pregnancy. Um, and they're not keeping up with that same data that reproductive psychiatrists are. Right. So they could go find a psychiatrist, but they may not be willing to prescribe anything during breastfeeding. Yeah. Finding the right kind of care is super important. And then same thing with therapy. Therapists can go through a um, specific training, um, and get a certification called PMHC or perinatal mental health certification. And so if you're trying to find a new therapist for specifically pregnancy or postpartum depression. Yeah. Um, finding a therapist with the letters PMHC is really important. Okay. Awesome. Um, so with and without proper treatment, how long can postpartum depression and anxiety last? Without proper treatment, it varies a lot, but I've seen people who have really extended episodes, you know, mm-hmm. even a, a year plus after they deliver. Um, Is that largely because hormones take such a long time to stabilize? It may or may not be because of hormones. It might just be that they had, again, this sort of pre-existing depression and theirs might be a depression that doesn't um, typically resolve without medication. Okay. Um, It's hard to say exactly why certain cases last longer. Uh, With proper treatment, it... The nice thing about postpartum depression and anxiety is it tends to be really responsive to treatment. And so with proper treatment, you can be better in, you know, a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, depending on how severe and response to treatment and things like that. But, um, yeah, much more quickly. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. Um, well, I'd love to chat about breastfeeding in particular, um, because I feel like, yeah, I feel like more more recently I've been seeing more content around breastfeeding and mental health and especially parents that feel guilty for having a low milk supply or for starting to pump more or anything like that. Um, so I just feel like there's a lot of unresolved feelings around breastfeeding that tend to not get discussed. Um, so I, I'm curious to get your personal take on how breastfeeding can impact mental health and what you should look out for during a breastfeeding journey in order to protect your mental health. Absolutely. It's really complex. Um, some people have a beautiful breastfeeding journey. They, yeah. It's easy for them. Their milk comes in naturally. They have a good supply, no problems with latching. They find it emotionally rewarding and it goes very smoothly. Yeah. That is the, the assumption is that that's the norm and that everyone will, will experience that. Um, and that's simply not the case. Mm-hmm. It can be complicated in a multitude of ways. Yeah. Um, 
There can be problems with supply, like you said. There can be problems with latching or tongue tie in the babies. There can be mm-hmm. a lot of pain. It can be a really painful process for mom um, to, to breastfeed. Um, moms might feel really um, resentful about pumping. Mm. Um, I, I have yet to meet someone who loves pumping. <laughs> um, it's either just tolerated or absolutely despised, but they just do it because they really want to continue providing breast milk. Mm. Um, but it, it can take up, you know, just a ton of time. You're just sitting there while, while you know, you're yeah. pumping for 20, 30 minutes, multiple times a day. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on if you're exclusively breastfeeding or pumping, um, you're also not able to get any sustained sleep. Because mm. either you need to be nursing your baby every few hours, yeah, or if you're pumping, you need to be pumping usually every four hours or so to to keep up your supply, right? Um, and so, just by nature of that, you're not able to get any sustained sleep. And what we see is that getting at least five to six hours of sustained sustained sleep is kind of a game changer for mental health, yeah, um, postpartum period or not. Yeah. Um, and so it can, again, it can impact mental health in all of these really different ways. And like you said, if it's not going the way they anticipated, there's this enormous amount of guilt and shame that mm-hmm. can come from that. Um, it, they feel like they're failing as a mother. They're not fit as a mother. They can, you know, can't feed their baby. Um, and what I actually find is that the flexibility about the feeding method is the biggest predictor of breastfeeding's impact on mental health. Mm. Um, This is based on my clinical experience. This is not based on studies or evidence, but in seeing many, many, many pregnant and postpartum women, Mm -hmm. um, if women go into the postpartum and this feeding journey with this very tightly held, rigid plan to Mm. breastfeed only, formula is not even an option. Yeah. That can really set them up for issues with mental health if there's any kind of problem with breastfeeding. Right. If they go into it rather with a more flexible mindset, you know, whether that's just coming to the conclusion themselves or talking to a pediatrician or the partner, whoever about it, but being able to go into that time and saying, I would love to breastfeed and just be able to provide only that to my baby. And I'm going to try my hardest. Um, If I need lactation consultation, I'll get it, whatever. I'm going to try my hardest. If it doesn't go the way that I would like it to go or I'm anticipating it will go, if there's problems with supply, if I don't like it, whatever, I'm fine going to formula. Yeah. That's a hugely different space than breast milk or bust. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard similar sentiments from labor and delivery nurses about um, birth plans. Yes. Yeah. Like I feel like there's this picture-perfect image that especially is pushed in media around both birth and also postpartum period and breastfeeding journey and everything like that. Um, and it just like can't biologically always fit that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can always hope for it, right? You can, you can imagine it, you can hope for it, but it's the expecting it that, right. that can really get in people's way. And the not having any kind of backup plan or or flexibility about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so how can you balance breastfeeding and mental health self-care, especially when it comes to things like sleep? Like if you require five to six sustained hours to make a big difference in your mental health, but you have to pump and or breastfeed every four hours, then how can you balance it? Do you have like a sleep schedule recommendation <laughs> or just tips in general um, on how to balance the two? Yeah. So it tends to get individualized for everybody, of course. But um, again, having the flexibility to think, you know, maybe one bottle of formula overnight is not the worst thing in the world. And having a partner that, you know, can wake up and give a bottle overnight mm-hmm. is, is super helpful. Yeah. Um, whether that bottle is pumped, pumped milk or formula. Um, if you're only breastfeeding and pumping, then you may have to sort of deal with the idea of having a lower supply because Mm -hmm. again, you do have, you know, just biologically you have to pump with a certain frequency to keep up the same supply. 
Yeah. So if you are pumping every four hours and you decrease it, you know, even overnight, you have a, a span of six hours. Not for everybody, but for some people, that can be enough to, to lower their supply. And you have to be right. mentally prepared for that. Um, so again, knowing that that's a possibility and again, being open to the idea of supplementing with formula, if that were to happen, is really, really helpful. But then in general, I think having a shift schedule between you and your partner mm -hmm. is really helpful for being able to meet baby's needs overnight and have everybody get five to six hours of sleep. Yeah. Um, so rather than everybody waking up every time the baby wakes up, having one person be on shift for six hours and does everything baby needs, feeding, diaper, getting back to sleep, all of that, and then after six hours, they switch. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when I, I know you, you chatted about, we chatted about earlier medication, specifically SSRIs and a lot of depression and um, anxiety-related medications being okay during pregnancy, but are they okay during breastfeeding? Basically, yes. Again, okay. short answer, yes. Yeah. Anything that you take during pregnancy is generally assumed to be fine in breastfeeding. Okay. Because the exposure is actually about five to ten times higher during pregnancy. Okay. Amazing. Um, are we good with this one? I found, yeah, one okay. last backup battery. <laughs> okay, sorry. I'm going to throw it. <laughs> I feel like the wide cam isn't as important, so okay. it should be good. I make sure to kind of just get, like, um, just, like, different angles where there's enough space. I know you, like, okay. to zoom in. Oh, yeah, yeah. And stuff, and so okay, just, cool. like... These are all still rolling, half cool. rolling, so I think okay. okay. Awesome. Yeah. Um, okay, so definitely good to know. Um, and I know you mentioned, or we've been chatting about medications as sort of a potential resource and coping mechanism for depression and anxiety, but what resources would you recommend um, besides medication and seeking psychiatry help or um, anything like that for parents that are struggling with postpartum uh, issues that are mental health related? It's definitely psychiatry therapy with a specific yeah. perinatal therapist. The, the online support groups, again, from uh, Postpartum Support International are incredibly right. helpful. Uh, community, just finding community. Um, yeah. If there are issues at home you know with with your partner and that's actually really common that marriages and or partnerships tend to change a lot immediately after babies um oftentimes one of the the strongest recommendations that i'm giving is couples counseling yeah um really ironing out communication issues mm. ideally that happens during pregnancy or prior to pregnancy and not um sort of emergently in right. the postpartum because it's also much easier to do a therapy session when there's not an infant. <laughs> but if it's necessary, you know, couples therapy can be incredibly helpful. Okay. Are there couples therapists that are also reproductive therapists or can specialize in that time? Some do, um, but it's, you know, they can have that PMHC yeah. um, certification. Um, and some therapists do sort of specialize in working with parents of kids of varying ages. Okay. Awesome. Um, my last question is around OCD since we, we haven't really touched on that prior. Um, if you are experiencing pregnancy OCD, what are your recommended coping mechanisms for that period? Yeah. So the, the impulse with OCD is to avoid the triggers that are causing this anxiety. Mm -hmm. So it can be, um, an impulsive thought about driving with the baby and getting into a car accident. And the mm. impulse is to then avoid driving. Mm. The avoidance is very reinforcing, kind of giving into those, those fears and um, giving them too much power yeah. is very reinforcing for them. Cause then you think, Oh, that's a dangerous, scary thought. You know, I'm going to get into a car accident if I avoid driving. Oh, whew, that feels a lot safer. So I'm going to mm. do that. But it just increases the anxiety the next time. So the, the best coping skill and what therapy would also sort of do formally is expose yourself yeah. to the thing that you're afraid of. Keep driving. Right. Um, sometimes people, have, you know, they'll see a knife on the kitchen counter and have an intrusive thought of stabbing their baby. These awful, mm. terrible images. And so they remove all knives from sight. Um, Very reinforcing. Mm. Keep the knife out. Look at the knife. Stare at the knife. 
yeah. and just kind of get through the anxiety that comes with it because it will always pass. The anxiety right. is not is not going to stick around forever. It will always pass. So you just habituate yourself to that anxiety. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm curious during your pregnancy, if you experienced any mental health issues and you you don't have to answer if you, if you're okay with it. Thankfully, I didn't have any major mental health issues during my pregnancy or postpartum, but I had the OCD thoughts. Mm. Um, I don't have a history of OCD, um, but I had these really, um, vivid, vivid, intrusive, immediate, automatic images of harm coming to my baby, mm. um, dropping her, you know, down the stairs or, or even off the stairs, mm. um, walking, you know, walking past a, a corner of a wall, I would, um, have an intrusive image that her head, which was, you know, sticking a little bit off of my arm would bash into the wall, mm. right? These really awful thoughts. I knew what they were because I do what I do, but, um, it's, it's jarring to, to experience it. Yeah. Was there anything that you did during your pregnancy and or postpartum, um, that you did because you are a psychiatrist and you have your background? Um, I, you know, I just really paid attention to how I was feeling, you know, being mindful, being present with yourself and, um, really early on saying, you know, let's let's not continue this let's get a couples therapist iron out a few things we met for a few sessions got you know some better communication skills and then moved on yeah well thank you for sharing um I know I didn't write down any questions about your personal experience but I was curious yeah um I'm gonna have to tell my husband I said um cool well yeah if anyone is especially in the LA area or even if they're not if you do telehealth um how can folks find you do you offer support to even folks outside of the LA area yeah so I have a private practice um in in person in Westlake Village and then I also offer telehealth depending on the severity of the case you know I see people all over California yeah um the website for that is brittanybothmd.com um, and then, uh, I also want to just talk about the really wonderful resources that I'm involved with at UCLA. Yeah. So the Women's Life Center, um, is again, this outpatient reproductive psychiatry clinic that does essentially everything that I do in private practice. Um, I bring it up because in my private practice, I take a couple of insurances. I take Aetna and Optum, but I don't take all insurances. And so mm. people are not able to afford, you know, a cash pay, um, service, you know, for like for reproductive psychiatry, most yeah. people can't. Um, mm-hmm. and so UCLA reproductive psychiatry clinic or women's life center is a much more accessible, um, place that people can get help. And it's, you know, they take the majority of insurances, the wait to get in is a bit long, mm-hmm. um, but it is a resource. And then for people who are having more severe problems during pregnancy or the postpartum. Um, there's actually a program at UCLA that's a higher level of care. It's called an intensive outpatient program or IOP um, that I also work in. Yeah. And that is a really incredible resource for people that need just more help than outpatient therapy and psychiatry. Um, it's three days a week, two days are virtual, and one day is in person at UCLA mm. in Westwood. Um, moms bring their babies when they're in program on that in-person day and it's weekly or bi-weekly psychiatry visits. So generally speaking, antidepressants are all considered to be safe to take during pregnancy. Uh, we have supportive data for, for all the different antidepressants really that we have on the market, especially the older ones. Some of the newer ones, we just don't have as much data on them because they haven't been around this long. But for the older ones that are well-established, we have enough data to support it. There is an association with this one particular thing that I always bring up with patients, but it's not something that changes my practice at all. So there is a, a risk of something called neonatal adaptation syndrome, which is a cluster of symptoms that can happen to the newborn immediately after delivery. It really ranges in what it looks like. It could be more crying and irritability, difficulty with latching or sucking. They can have some motor issues or, or t- uh, muscle tone issues, they could be high 
floppy or a little bit more tense. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they can be grunting, which is a sign of respiratory distress. Um, it's always time limited by itself. Um, it, it goes away on its own. It doesn't require specific treatment to make it go away. Um, typically, if it does happen, it, it will last on the order of hours to days, you know, a few hours, maybe a couple of days at most. The, the longest ones are like a couple of weeks that it's most severe. Mm. And it, it doesn't require treatment to make it go away. It'll go away on its own. If it is one of the more severe cases, sometimes it, re it can require support in the NICU, just feeding and breathing support, just to get them through that. Um, once it goes away, they've done these long-term studies um, on kids that experience it, and there's no lasting impact. They develop completely normally after that. Um, so there is the, the risk of that. It also tends to be really mild. So we talk about the more severe cases of what that looks like, but it tends to be so mild that most people don't even see it. Um, in the literature, it says that it can happen up to 30% of the time. But if you think about those symptoms, you know, crying, difficulty with latching, they might look a little floppy or, or um, tense, that just sort of looks like a newborn. And so oftentimes it's not even recognized that it's happening clinically. Mm -hmm. um, and so 30% is coming from some, a researcher who's standing there like checking little boxes. If you ask any reproductive psychiatrist, you know, has this happened to a third of your patients taking medication through pregnancy? Absolutely not. No one's going to say that it happens a third of the time. And people who are doing it for decades have, have had maybe a handful of patients report back that it happened. Yeah. Regardless, it's in the literature. We know that there is an association with it, so I always talk about it. But it's not something that changes my practice at all. It's not a reason to not take medication. Yeah. Okay, awesome.